From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger, in for Terry Gross. Today, we remember Angela Lansbury, who died earlier this month at the age of 96. She won Tony Awards for her performances on Broadway as Mama Rose and Gypsy and the pie shop owner Mrs. Lovett in Sweeney Todd. And she starred in the TV series Murder, She Wrote. Also, New Yorker culture critic Wa Shu talks about the things that formed his identity. He's the son of immigrants from Taiwan who defined himself by his musical obsessions after falling in love with Nirvana, just before they became famous. Life then was full of mixtapes. He became close friends with a Japanese-American college classmate named Ken. Three years later, Ken was carjacked and killed. That murder changed the course of Washu's life. His memoir is called Stay True. And Justin Chang reviews the new film The Banshees of Inisherin. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger, in for Terry Gross. Broadway dimmed the lights last weekend in tribute to Angela Lansbury. The acclaimed film and music actress and star of the TV series Murder, She Wrote, died on October 11th. She was 96. Lansbury delivered unforgettable performances for her starring roles in the Broadway musicals Mame, Gypsy, and Sweeney Todd. Her work on stage earned her five Tony Awards, plus a Lifetime Achievement Tony Award, earlier this year. In Sweeney Todd, Lansbury played Mrs. Lovett, who runs an unsuccessful bakery in Victorian London, and is inspired to team up with a local barber named Sweeney Todd. Todd is a serial killer, driven by rage, intent on murdering many of his customers. In the song A Little Priest, Mrs. Lovett suggests a particularly gruesome partnership. Her meat pie business needs a lift, and she and Sweeney imagine how profitably they can recycle the bodies that are piling up, and the variety of meat pies they can offer their customers. Lawyer's rather nice. If it's for a price. Order something else, though, to follow, since no one should swallow it twice. Have you any dean? No, but if you're British and loyal, you might enjoy Royal Marine. Anyway, it's clean, though of course it tastes off wherever it's been. Is that squire on the fire? Mercy knows a look close up, you'll notice it's grosser. Looks thicker, more like thicker. No, it has to be grosser, it's green. (laughs) (laughs) Angela Lansbury and Len Carreyou from Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd. Angela Lansbury's career spanned seven decades. When she was 17, George Cukor cast her as the maid in the 1944 film Gaslight. She was nominated for an Academy Award for that performance and received another nomination the following year for her role in The Picture of Dorian Gray. In the 60s, she was nominated again for her terrific performance as a manipulative mother in The Manchurian Candidate. In the 1991 Disney film Beauty and the Beast, she was the voice of the talking teapot Mrs. Potts. But she's perhaps best known for her role as Jessica Fletcher in the long-running CBS mystery series Murder, She Wrote, which ran for 12 seasons from 1984 until 1996. It was created by writers and producers from Columbo, with Lansbury playing a mystery writer and amateur sleuth who lives in the small town of Cabot Cove, helping solve the murders that seem to pop up there on a weekly basis. Terry Gross interviewed Angela Lansbury twice, first in 1980. But we'll start with an interview recorded 20 years later in 2000. Angela Lansbury, welcome to Fresh Air and congratulations on the Kennedy Center honor. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) 
Let, let's start with your childhood. You, you grew up in London. Your mother was an actress. What kind of work did she do? My mother was an Irish actress, and she appeared in a number of various plays during the time that she was working. She uh, started off doing uh, Shaw, uh, George Bernard Shaw, and also Shakespeare, and uh, became also the leading lady of, of the great uh, English sort of matinee actor who was Sir Gerald de Maurier. So she, she played a variety of roles, actually. She was a serious actress. She was not a comedy, uh, musical comedy actress. She was a serious actress. During World War II, when you were young, your, your brothers were sent to a family in the countryside, as, as many British children were, to get away from the bombing. But you wanted to stay home. And, but your school was moving, so you, you, you weren't able to go to school. I think you worked out a deal with your mother that uh, you would be tutored at home and then also take singing and dancing lessons. That's absolutely true. And I, I thank goodness I chose to do that or that she agreed to let me do that. But I think she also was quite happy to have me stay with her as I was the only, I was the sort of remaining uh, sibling who was around and therefore she was quite happy to have me stay at home with her and have classes and start my dramatic training. You came to the United States with your mother, I believe it was during World War II. Yes, we came in 1940 which was uh, a terrible year because it was the on uh, the, during the year was the onset of the really big bombing of Britain Liverpool was bombed right after we left on our ship which was a Canadian Pacific liner which was uh, headed for Canada my mother had been widowed 5 years earlier by the death of my father and uh, we had no she also was in the in the middle of a, a rather un unproductive and unsuccessful love affair and she wanted to get away from it but she but mainly number one she recognized the fact that Britain was likely to be bombed and that London really was no place for us to remain if we could possibly get away. Did you and your mother both want to act in the United States? Yes my mother wanted to pick up eventually her career and when we first arrived, we, we used to do readings together. We'd do Shakespeare. We'd go to the various schools all around uh, Prairie and New York and Miss Watts-its-Names. I forget the name. I shouldn't remember. I should remember. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and also some of the great prep schools outside of the city. And for $25, which in those days was quite a lot of money, we would do scenes from uh, Romeo and Juliet, and uh, she would do scenes of Desdemona and... Um, to, she also did epic poems uh, by Alice Dewar Miller and various other writers who were writing epic poems about the war at that time. And uh, she was very, very good at it. She was a great recitalist, as they used to call them in Victorian days, or Edwardian days, I should say. And uh, so I would go along with her in some instances, and many times she went alone. But that was the beginning of her career in the States and mine, too. So sometimes you worked as a team. Did you ever feel competitive with your mother? I never felt competitive with her, no. I know that eventually, I think, uh, it crept in, you know, that green-eyed monster sort of crept in from my mother's side. But um, Ooh, She felt competitive but, toward you? Yes, I think so, because she thought, after all, she was a woman. She was only in her 40s, and she was the most beautiful woman, my mother. And uh, she wanted to have a career. She was a very earnest and terribly hardworking actor, actress who found it 
working and learning roles very, very difficult. Acting for her required tremendous concentration and, and devotion to duty. And uh, she loved doing it, but it put a tremendous strain on her, uh, whereas I seemed to do it with one hand tied behind my back. So it was, uh, there was a, an, an unevenness, shall we say, in our, uh, our approach to, the jo- to, to, to work. And, and, you, um, and you started getting roles in movies. Well, I eventually, of course, when we, we moved out to Los Angeles and uh, I got my first big interview and I got the part. So my, my uh, career in movies was jump-started by my being accepted for the role of Nancy in Gaslight. Well, why don't we hear a short scene from your screen debut in Gaslight? And in this movie, Charles Boyer plays a husband who's trying to, to drive his wife mad. His wife is played by Ingrid Bergman. And this is basically a scheme to institutionalize her so he could take her jewels and her money. You play the maid that he hires. And um, in this scene, you're getting flirtatious with him. Seems to be getting worse, doesn't she, sir? You will please not refer to your mistress as she. Thank you, Nancy. Going to work on your tunes again tonight, sir? You're always working, aren't you? Yes. What are you doing with your evening out? Oh, I'm going to a musical. I've never been to an English musical. Oh, you don't know what you've missed, sir. Up in a balloon, boys. Up in a balloon. You like it a lot, sir. Well, you must see about that. And whom are you going to the musical with? Gentlemen friends, sir. Oh, now you know, Nancy, don't you? That gentlemen friends are sometimes inclined to take liberties with young ladies. Oh, no, sir. Not with me. I can take care of myself when I want to. You know, Nancy, it strikes me that you're not at all the kind of girl that your mistress should have for a housemaid. No, sir. She's not the only one in the house, is she? (laughs) (laughs) Angela Lansbury, was that that your bit of business, singing uh, that vaudeville kind of song, Up in a Balloon? No, nothing was my idea in that movie. That was all prearranged and uh, thought up by uh, by George Cukor. Yeah, were and John Van Druten, who was the uh, screenwriter of that. Well, you were still a minor when you were making Gaslight. What kind of special provisions were made for you on the set? Oh, it was required that there was a, a social worker with me until my eighteenth birthday, which I, I celebrated on the set of Gaslight, actually. And uh, I always remember it because uh, Ingrid and Charles and George Cukor were so wonderfully kind. And Ingrid gave me uh, lovely bottles of Strategy, which was a lovely smelly cologne, which I never had anything as lovely as that. And uh, uh, the powder, you know, sort of talcum powder and things, a set. I always remember that. It's interesting, the things you do remember. <laughs> and uh, uh, we celebrated and I was able to take a cigarette out of a packet in my purse and smoke it, which I hadn't been able to let on that I had been smoking from the time I was really about 14 years old. I say that without any sense of pride at all, and I stopped smoking 30 years ago. But nevertheless, as I, I don't know whether you remember, but I do smoke a rather long cigarettello in, in, the, in the movie, and uh, that was part of the, uh, uh, the business in the movie of Gaslight. But uh, they only let me puff it, and I wasn't allowed to inhale, as Mr. Clinton would say. So <laughs> I, I, but in fact, I had been smoking for a couple of years. Um, Gaslight is one of those movies with really nice black and white lighting. Do you remember getting lit for the film and what that process was like? 
Very well. I do remember very well. Uh, Joseph Rottenberg was the uh, DP on that, and uh, he was an extraordinarily careful, painstaking uh, person when it came to lighting women. And I think some of the shots of uh, Ingrid Bergman are some of the most beautiful, tremulous, lovely shots I've ever seen in black and white photography, except for what he did for Garbo and those. But certainly we all uh, were the beneficiaries of his artistry. You were nominated for an Oscar Best Supporting Actress for that first role. Mm-hmm. You lost to Ethel Barrymore. <laughs> it must have been pretty heady to be nominated your first time out. Oh, I should say so. I was absolutely knocked off my pins. <laughs> Couldn't believe it. We're listening back to Terry's interview with Angela Lansbury, recorded in 2000. Lansbury died October 11th. She was 96. We'll hear an excerpt of Terry's 1980 interview with Angela Lansbury after a break. And Justin Chang will review Banshees of Inisherin, the new film by Martin McDonough. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. We're paying tribute to Broadway, film, and TV actress Angela Lansbury, who died earlier this month. Terry first interviewed her in 1980, when Lansbury was starring as Mrs. Lovett in Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd. That role earned her one of her many Tonys. The show was about a murderous barber in Victorian London. I wonder what the first things were they told you about it to explain what the show would be like. Well, they took it for granted that I knew the legend because um, coming from England originally, I know all about Sweeney Todd. When I say I know all about Sweeney Todd, I know that he was almost a a grand guignol character that was uh, sung about and little doggerel rhymes were written about, you know, Sweeney Todd will get you if you don't watch out. He's, he's a character almost like Jack the Ripper in uh, English folklore. And he turns up and people quote his name all the time. He is also uh, written into a, a several very melodramatic types of uh, almost grand guignol one-actors that actors used to go out on the road with in the turn of the century. So he's a very well-known name and character in uh, theatrical folklore. This is the third musical that Stephen Sondheim uh, had a a contribution to. Of course, he wrote this, but he he, uh, did the lyrics for Gypsy, which you uh, starred in. Yes, it's the third time I've worked with him, actually. Is he the kind of composer who will sit down at the piano with you and, and sing his songs for you to give you an idea of what he had in his mind? Absolutely. Steve always auditions all his own work. And the thing he loves to do when he has a new song, he wants you to come over and hear it. And uh, he'll, when he's got a few, he'll say, "Come on over, I want to play you what a, you play you the song that I've written for you in such and such a place in the script." And you know, I'll pop over to his house and uh, he'll sit down at the piano and he'll sing the song. Kills himself laughing when he was when he was playing uh, the worst pies in London. Can you imagine trying to play that and make all the sound effects and? you know, all the beats and so on, which are done with with the dough and the rolling pin and all of that. He'd worked it all out, every piece of business. And that song Steve had written, it was right there on the music. She swaps the fly, she hits the dough, she pops her mouth or whatever she does, you know, at that moment. And I wonder with the price of meat what it is when you get it. Never thought I'd live to see the day. Men that think it was a trick, finding poor animals what are dying in the street. Mrs. Mooney has a pie shop. Business, but I've noticed something weird. Lately, all the neighbors' cats have disappeared. After winding to a what I call enterprise, popping pussies into pies. Wouldn't do in my shop. 
Just the thought of it's enough to make you sick And I'm telling you the pussycats is quick Now nine times is hard, sir Even harder than the worst parties in London Only lad and nothing more is than just Revolting, all greasy and gritty It looks like it's molting and tastes like Well, pity a woman alone With limited wind And the worst buys in London Ah, sir, times is hard Times is hard I want to talk with you about the character that you play. Now, you had said that finding the character was left completely to you, and you went mm-hmm. back to uh, books written about Sweeney Todd in the original book to find out a little more about the character. Now, you manage in the production to convey simultaneously meanness and humor an ability to be murderous with an ability to be extremely warm and friendly and huggable, mm-hmm. lovable. And you have the audience on your side as you're participating yes. in, in these murders. What are some of the ways, do you feel, that you're able to convey all of that and have, have the audience with you like that? Now, Mrs. Lovett is, is really a conglomerate of all of that knowledge that I have of English theatre going way, way back. She is almost a choreographed character. She is so broad in her scope. She can... The, the idea is that she can do anything. She can slit your throat and you will love her as she's doing it because she does it with such such a total childlike joy and amorality that anything goes. Now, this is everybody's dream of a companion, somebody who will adapt instantly to anything you would like to expect from her at that moment. Now, that's what we all long for. Sweeney Todd, lucky devil, found the very one. Now, occasionally she goes, she goes off on her own little tangent, such as when she confides to him that her dream in life is really to retire by the seaside. But if she didn't, and if he didn't, provide her with the little house by the sea, she would still do anything in the world that he wanted. Why? Because she absolutely adores him, and always did. Now, these are all the things that I know about Mrs. Lovett. I have to try and sell you on the fact that, th- that this is the case about this, this old bag lady. But um, I do understand these things about her, and so that is what I am playing all the time. She is a victim of the gutter. She is on the edge of the establishment. Absolutely anything goes. The fact that they have no money and no food for the pies, the most obvious thing in the world to her is to utilize those poor fellas coming down the chute. Well, you know me. Bright ideas just pop into my head and I keep thinking. Seems a downright shame. Shame? Seems an awful waste Such a nice plump frame What's his name as? Ad Has Nor it can't be traced Business needs are lift Debts to be erased Think of it as thrift As a gift If you get my drift No? Seems an awful waste I mean with the price of meat, what it is when you get it 
If you get it. Huh. Good you got it. Take, for instance, Mrs. Mooney and a pie shop. Business never better using only pussy cats and toast. And a pussy's good for maybe six or seven at the most. And I'm sure they can't compare as far as taste. Mrs. Lovett, what a charming notion. Well, and I'll be practical and not appropriate twice. as always. Mrs. Lovett, how I've lived without you all these years, I'll never know. Think I'll about be it. Lots of other gentlemen will soon be coming for a shame. Won't they? Think about choice. All them oh, what's the sound of the world out there? What, Mr. Todd? What, Mr. Todd? What is that sound? Those crunching noises pervading the air. Yes, Mr. Todd, yes, all around. It's man devouring man, my dear. And who are we to deny in here? That's Angela Lansbury and Len Carriou singing A Little Priest from Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd. Let's conclude our tribute to Angela Lansbury with another excerpt of Terry's 2000 interview with her. We've talked about your your long and really wonderful career on stage and screen. I think uh, some of our listeners will know you best from television for your work on uh, Murder, She Wrote as uh, as Jessica, Jessica Fletcher, Fletcher, who has mm-hmm. solved uh, God knows how many murders <laughs> over the years that you, you did that show. Did you ever count how many murders you solved? Uh, 264. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> What was it like for you after playing so many different roles over the years to settle into one role for several years? Uh, when I first started Murder, She Wrote, I thought it would last maybe two, three years, you know, or, or maybe a year if we were lucky. Uh, but when it extended and I realized the deep inroads it had made into family life in America, I couldn't stop. So I was sort of trapped, happily trapped, for 12 years with it. And I'm still playing Jessica from time to time and and loving it. I I wouldn't want to let go of that lady. What what did you like about her? She was the sort of woman I like, and therefore I, I enjoyed playing her and being Jessica was second nature to me because she uh, she embodied all of the, the qualities that I like about women. She was uh, valiant and uh, uh, liberal and uh, athletic and uh, exciting and, and, and sexy and all kinds of good stuff that women are of a certain age and are not given credit for. So to be able to play that uh, gave me tremendous uh, sort of pleasure, and I, I'm so glad I've done it. Well, I thank you so very much for talking with us, and congratulations again on the Kennedy Center Honor. Thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and as I say, I listen to your program all the time. Angela Lansbury, speaking to Terry Gross in 2000. She died earlier this month at age 96. Fourteen years ago, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson played a pair of hitmen in Martin McDonough's comic thriller in Bruges. Now the three are together again in a new drama, The Banshees of Inisharan, which recently won Farrell the Best Actor Award at the Venice Film Festival. Our film critic, Justin Chang, has a review. Because we as a culture can mistakenly equate beauty with shallowness, it's taken time for some to realize what a great actor Colin Farrell is. He's always been a charismatic screen presence, though in recent years he's revealed striking new emotional depths as a leading man, in movies like The Lobster and this year's After Yang. He's also proved willing to bury his good looks under mounds of prosthetics as the villainous penguin in The Batman. 
Farrell gives what may be his strongest performance yet in The Banshees of Inishirin, and one of the reasons he's so good in it is that he's playing a character who, perhaps like Farrell himself, is used to being underestimated. His character, Parik, is a sweet-souled farmer who's spent his entire life on Inishirin, a small fictional island off the coast of Ireland. It's 1923, and life here is simple and repetitive, which is why it sends off small shockwaves one day when Colm, Parik's older best friend, refuses to join him for their usual afternoon pint down at the pub. He soon learns that Colm, who's played by Brendan Gleeson, has decided to end their decades-long friendship with nary a word of explanation. Sometime later, Park confronts Colm outside the pub and tries to find out what's going on. Now, I'm sitting here next to you, and if you're going back inside, I'm following you inside, and if you're going home, I'm following you there too. Now... If I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. And if I've said something to you, maybe I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it, but I don't think I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it. But if I did, then tell me what it was. And I'll say sorry for that too, Colin. Uh, with all my heart, I'll say sorry. Just stop running away from me like some fool of a moody schoolchild. But you didn't say anything to me. And you didn't do anything to me. Well, that's what I was thinking, like. I just don't like you no more. You do like me. I don't. You liked me yesterday. Oh, did I? Yeah. I thought you did. In time, the truth comes out. Colm finds Parik dull and is tired of listening to the younger man's endless yammering, especially since it keeps Colm from pursuing his passion, playing and composing violin music. Gleason is terrific at showing you the tenderness beneath his outward stoicism. And what's heartbreaking is that Colm does still like Parik, but he also knows that their friendship is draining him. But Parik can't accept Colm's decision. He tries cajoling his former friend, then pleading with him, then badgering him. At one point, Colm becomes so irritated that he threatens to physically harm himself if Parik doesn't leave him alone. And since this is a movie written and directed by Martin McDonough, the British-Irish playwright and filmmaker with a taste for Baroque comic violence, you know it isn't an idle threat. This movie isn't as grisly as some of McDonough's earlier stage and screen works. I still have fond memories of seeing his blood-soaked play, The Lieutenant of Inishmore, years ago, and somewhat less fond memories of his Oscar-winning film, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Compared with that movie's wildly uneven mix of comedy and tragedy, The Banshees of Inishirin is a quieter, gentler work. But its melancholy also cuts much deeper. McDonough opens the story with gorgeous, postcard-worthy images of Inishirin, all lush green landscapes, and even a rainbow in the sky. But by the end, he has quashed any sweet or sentimental thoughts we might harbor toward this isolated community— where people can be spiteful and small-minded, and mock those who want to leave or strive for something better. Few people know this as well as Parik's bookish sister, Siobhan, played by a terrific Carrie Condon. She loves her brother dearly, flaws and all. She's also one of the few people in town who can connect with Colm intellectually, 
and she understands why he wants to be left alone. There are other colorful supporting characters, too. A nasty policeman, a doom-prophesying old woman, and an annoying young man played with marvelous pathos by Barry Keoghan. And I haven't even mentioned the animal cast. Two of the movie's most important characters are Calm's pet collie and Parek's pet donkey, noble creatures who put the pettiness and stupidity of humans to shame. There's something a little glib about that idea, and also about the way the Banshees of Inishirin uses the Irish Civil War, raging in the background of the story, as a counterpoint to the conflict between Parek and Colm. But there's nothing glib about how these two characters are written. To watch Farrell and Gleason rage against each other is to better understand what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. It's been a while since a movie extracted this much drama from the end of a beautiful friendship. Justin Chang is a film critic for the LA Times. He reviewed The Banshees of Inisharan. Coming up, New Yorker culture critic Wa Shu talks about his new memoir, Stay True. This is Fresh Air Weekend. Terry spoke to New Yorker culture critic Wa Shu about his new memoir. I'll let Terry take it from here. When you're a teenager trying to figure out your own identity and how you want to signal to others who you are, one way to define yourself is by the music you listen to or films, TV shows, video games, videos that you love. Sometimes the more esoteric, the better, because it shows off your ability to discover these things before anyone else and shows your discerning taste. My guest Hua Xu went through that period but remained passionate about pop culture. He's a culture critic at The New Yorker, where he's been a staff writer since 2017. His new memoir reflects on his teenage and college years and his complicated search for identity. As the son of immigrants from Taiwan, he writes... We could never write in a way that assumed anyone knew where we were coming from. There was nothing interesting about our context, neither black nor white, just boring to everyone on the outside. Where do you even begin explaining yourself? His close friend Ken was Japanese-American and came from a more assimilated family who had been here for generations. Washu's identity and his understanding of his past, present, and future came to a turning point after Ken his close friend, was carjacked and shot to death. It was the first time a close friend had died, and the only time anyone Shu knew died so violently and suddenly. That was in 1998, and Shu's been reflecting on it ever since. This memoir is the result of how, over the years, he continued to write and reflect on the meaning of that friendship and the struggle to find meaning after the murder. The memoir is called Stay True. Washu, welcome to Fresh Air. I love your memoir, and I'm so glad we have this chance to talk. Thanks so much for having me. It's it's really it's a real delight to be here. You're so obsessed with music, and have been since you were a teenager. <laughs> yeah. Your father your father loved music, classical music. When he was living in Taiwan in the U.S., he discovered Dylan, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Aretha, Guns and Roses, Hendrix, Ray Charles, Neil Young, um, and as an act of rebellion. You didn't listen to music. (laughs) He was listening to music. You'd be listening to baseball games on the radio. I find that so amusing, you know, that someone (laughs) who's been so obsessed with music for so many years, like, initially rejected it as being, like, uncool. You know, I'm a parent now, and I really think that children, you know, you're 
you're supposed to not think that what your parents are into is like cool or relevant to you. And, or at least at certain ages. And so I think when I was younger and my dad would always be dragging me to the record store, he would be watching MTV. He would be taping his favorite videos onto VHS tapes. I just thought like, this is what adults did. Uh, I was just more into the things that, that I felt like I had discovered for myself. So for whatever reason, I was just listening to a lot of daytime talk shows and baseball games. I just thought music was the least cool thing you could be into. Uh, but then when I got to middle school, I realized that he'd really prepared me for, um, you know, some of the esoteric knowledge that becomes your currency when you're a teenager. You fell in love with Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit when you were 13. And you became addicted to the feeling that you happened on a secret before everyone else. What was so addicting about that for you? You know, it's very funny for me to reflect on it now because, you know, hundreds of millions of people like Nirvana and also have had a very similar experience where, you know, they become fascinated with what this band represents and sort of the the rebellion that they seem to suggest. Um, I think for me in that moment, you know, I was getting into music. I had learned so much from studying my parents and sort of how they engage with music, how they appreciate it. You know, I, I was copying the things that people at my high school were into. So to hear something first and to deem it great and for no one else to know it, at least for a few minutes, because like very soon afterwards, Nirvana became like the biggest band in the country. I I was just addicted to having this tiny kernel of knowledge, like a few minutes before everyone else. And it really guided me through my teenage years. What happened when you realized that Nirvana had become like really popular. Did you have to <laughs> renounce them after that because it was no longer like your special discovery? Yeah, and it's again, I feel like this was a incredibly generic experience in retrospect shared by tens of millions of people, but you know, I was so invested in them and all of a sudden when when too many other kids in middle school were showing up with Nirvana t-shirts, I thought, you know, I got to move on to something more esoteric than this. I got to I got to discover something new for myself. So, I didn't really renounce them, but you know, I just sort of eased off and tried to basically find other bands that sounded exactly like Nirvana to claim as my own. There's a paragraph I want to read I want you to read from your book. And it's actually like the opening paragraph that gives sure. a sense of the place of music in your life when you were that age, well, when you were a little uh-huh. bit older and could drive. Back then, There was no such thing as spending too much time in the car. We would have driven anywhere so long as we were together. I always offered my Volvo. First, it seemed like the cool, generous thing to do. Second, it ensured that everyone had to listen to my music. Nobody could cook, yet we were always piling into my station wagon for aspirational trips to the grocery store on College Avenue, the one that took about six songs to get to. We crossed the Bay Bridge simply to get ice cream, justifying a whole new mixtape. There's a 24-hour Kmart down 880 that we discovered one night on the way back from giving someone a lift to the airport, the ultimate gesture of friendship. A half-hour drive just to buy notepads or underwear in the dead of night, and it was absolutely worth it. Occasionally, a stray, scratchy pop tune would catch someone's attention. What's this? I'd heard these songs hundreds of times before, but to listen to them with other people, it was what I'd been waiting for. Mixtapes. <laughs> Does that seem like ancient history to you now? 
It does, although I, I have been making new mixtapes to sort of give away to people my reading. So I have, I'm actually sitting next to a stack of 60-minute cassette tapes that I had to buy off eBay. When your father moved back to Taiwan, when you were still a teenager, you would communicate with him by fax. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, when Kurt Cobain died uh, uh, by suicide, uh, that was a very important significant moment for you. I mean, you really loved their music. That was the first music you kind of claimed as like your own as an independent listener, Mm -hmm. you know, separate from your father. And you were faxing back and forth with your father about the meaning of Kurt Cobain's death. And I thought he actually had some really interesting things to say about that. Do you want to talk about what he said? Of course. I mean, it was, it was a moment for me when I realized kind of the power of, of writing in a way, because I was trying on a lot of ideas. You know, I think when Kurt Cobain um, took his own life, there were all sorts of newspaper op-eds about kind of the dystopian culture and angst and ennui and sort of the the sort of um, feeling of Generation X, which is not a generation that I identified with. But, you know, I was really fascinated with these broader contexts. And so I would write to my father about, you know, like what I thought his life and death signified. And while I myself didn't feel like depressed per se by Kurt Cobain's suicide, uh, my father sort of read deeply into the into these essays I was writing him, and he was a little concerned. And he he was he was very much interested in sort of like, well, you know, you have to have passion, you have to have belief, but you also have to you know just figure out how to live. And he wrote about trying to find meaning in life, but accepting the reality. I thought that was very interesting and maybe very helpful at the time. Yeah, and and you know when we when I was a teenager, um, the the main purpose of the facts was for him to help me with my math homework because I was helpless at math and he's he's very good at math, and so we would he would fax me answers to my math homework, but every now and then we would sort of go on these tangents and talk about kind of what was going on in America, what was going on in Taiwan, and. As a 13, 14-year-old, I completely just skimmed those parts of his faxes. Like, I, I was just there for the homework answers, basically. And so it's been incredible to sort of look back and realize that there are these themes to his writing or that there are these things that he was always trying to get me to think about. And, and one of them is exactly what you just said, this, this idea that, um, you know, we, we grow up, we live within these certain conditions, you have to deal with them, but you also have to find your own meaning. Uh, you know, how do we sort of have a heart and not be robotic, but how do we also kind of accept some of the circumstances that we have to endure? Um, that's something I think he was trying to figure out for himself, but something he also wanted to, uh, you know, alert me to as I was getting older. So I want to talk about your friend, Ken, a close friend from your college years who was murdered. Um, and uh, I want to start with your friendship. Uh, sure. You write about him with a kind of passion that is often reserved for writing about lovers. Mm-hmm. You know, this like incredible bond that you felt and, you know, how you traveled through the world together in a lot of ways. I don't mean geographically around the world, but, you know, through the world of your lives. Um, and I'm wondering if a lot of that feeling of connection and closeness and necessity was in retrospect, or if you f- felt all that at the time? 
That's a that's a great question. Um, I think being young, you're just sort of drawn to intensity. You know, you you think that this is either the, the best night of your life or the worst night of your life. You you think you couldn't possibly be happier or sadder. And I think there were a lot of moments in my friendship with Ken that that definitely felt that way. Just that there was nowhere in the world I would have wanted to be, um, other than this balcony smoking these cigarettes, having this conversation. And so it is a friendship that felt very special in the moment. Um, But I think, you know, what necessitates one narrativizing one's own life, it's, it's, it's the end of something, you know, it's, it's a moment like the moment that took Ken from us that sort of forced me to actually um, reflect on things rather than continue looking forward. Um, And when you're young, you're just always looking for the next thrill. You're always looking for the next adventure, you want to know what's going to happen next weekend. You're not necessarily thinking about, you know, the road you've traveled uh, thus far. And so some of it is, some of it was felt in the moment, but much of it is very retrospective. Um, And it's something that has taken me quite a while to um, find language for. So when you first found out that when he left his own party late at night, that he was carjacked, put into the trunk of his own car, then taken out of the car and shot. Um, How much of that were you told when you told that he was killed? Uh, I don't think we knew any of that. Um, And so the police told told his family and told a couple of us that um, he had been killed. They wouldn't reveal any other details at that time but within a within a couple days i think the story was pieced together like fairly quickly and we found out and it was it was it really compounded the shock that it it had been such a uh, sort of gruesome incident were there songs that you played over and over again after your friend ken was killed there were, and, and there were a lot of songs that I, I stopped playing altogether as well um, because they felt too um, triggering in a way. Uh, like prior to his death in 1998, I was just listening to a lot of um, indie pop music that was like sort of quiet and sensitive. Um, and a lot of that just felt not how I was feeling anymore after his death. And so I actually just kind of wholesale stopped listening to most of my music. And I just started listening to other forms of music that didn't have those kinds of like emotional marks on them. Um, but one one song that I do remember listening to obsessively a lot with him and with our other friends um, was God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. Um, and after his passing, I would, I would listen to it kind of reverently, you know, like once or twice a year. But it was, it was very difficult to listen to because... I could always hear kind of like how I had heard it in the past and what it represented in the past as well. And it no longer, it no longer felt good to listen to things built around like harmony or built around melody because these were, these were um, sensations that just didn't really vibe with how I was feeling at the time. So how did God Only Knows, which is such a great track, how, how did that compare pre-Ken's death to post-Ken's death and your reaction to it? Well, one of, one of the things that 
some of my friends, Ken, um, Sean, Ben, and I would do on Friday nights is we would um, often just drive to this donut shop and we would listen to this song. And, you know, it's a, the, the harmonies on it are so perfect and gorgeous. And, and they, they make you feel as though there's like beauty in the natural world that like people's voices coming together can, can accomplish this, this um, perfection. Um, of course, like we were terrible singers, and so it was. It was like we were committing violence to the song by singing along to it <laughs> while going, going to the donut shop. But it was just very difficult to disentangle the song itself from these memories of singing along to it. And I think, in those moments, but sort of like in retrospect as well, I've always seen a song as like. A community, you know, and, and a song is a is proof that people can do something together, that they can accomplish something together that they can't do alone. Whether it's people singing together, playing instruments together, and I think for me, just there's a kind of melancholy. It's a it's a beautiful song, but like lyrically, it's very melancholy, and that that just felt um, a little too heavy for me afterwards because um, it's also just. Uh, the the, mel- the the sort of harmonies felt wrong to me. And now? Now I, I love the song again, and, and I think part of it is is kind of having figured out a way to, to move forward for myself. Um, for me, music was a way of learning, like, how to be, how to have emotions, basically. You know, like, you, you learn how to be happy, you learn how to fall in love, you learn about heartache through music before you actually experience some of these things, you know, at, at their greatest intensities. And I think there are so many songs about like romantic love that I would listen to and think, well, I don't love Ken in this way, but this is sort of like an intensity of feeling that, that I, that, that, that feels familiar to me. And so I think a lot of those songs that were actually about, like romantic love or like romantic heartache took on a different meaning for me afterwards. Um, Cause there aren't as many songs that are just about friendship. You know, um, there are songs that enact friendship, but there aren't songs that are just like about being friends. Washu, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. I'm really glad you wrote your memoir. Thanks so much. This was really special for me. Terry Gross speaking with Washu, the culture critic for the New Yorker. His memoir is called Stay True. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. For Terry Gross, I'm Sam Brigger. Bye.